1: Welcome to the 298th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Brooke Adams Law, author of the brand new novel Catch Light. Stay tuned for the interview. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast special offer? Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Brooke Adams-Law, author of the new novel Catch Light. Brooke, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited.
1: Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your novel Light* yet, how would you describe the novel?
2: Yes. So Catchlight is about, it's the story of the Keen family, and they are four grown siblings. They can't stand to be in the same room together, which some listeners may or may not be able to relate to. And when their mother is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, they really have to figure out how they're going to come together, not only to make these very serious decisions, right, about her health care, about her finances, but also figure out how they're going to come back. In into relationship with each other.
1: And so what was the impetus or original idea that led you to writing Catch Light?
2: Yes, this is a great question. So when I was in college, my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and I had a little bit of a different experience than other family members of mine because I went to school out of state. So when I would come home, it would always have been like two or three months since I had last seen her. And so her decline was always very apparent to me, whereas like my dad, who would go visit her every few days, like even though he could see the decline, it was not always as sure sharp to him, um, just kind of seeing her every day. So she passed away in 2007. And that summer, I moved home after I graduated. And I was reading another book about an elderly narrator who was kind of using her retirement to come to terms with the experiences she had had in her life and to kind of process her memories. And I started asking myself this question, well, who are we without our memory? And how do we come to terms with the end of our life if we're not able to kind of process our life experience? And so from that question, who are we without our memory, I started imagining a fictional family who was going through something similar to what my my dad's family went to, went through. But I, I kind of imagined it as if I were in the room with them, right? Whereas with my own family, I had not been right there in the room. And I kind of imagined these four siblings and the decisions they would have to make and also kind of the relationships they would have to rebuild with each other. And that was kind of the genesis for Catchlight.
1: And had you written fiction before you sat down to start working on Catchlight?
2: Mm, this is a great question. So I had always written stories like in high school, one of my stories won a prize at the local library. And in college, I took a couple of creative writing classes. And when I started writing this book, I was because I was 22, and it was 2007. And I was very much like, couldn't even tell myself. I'm writing a novel. Like I couldn't even admit that to myself because the idea was honestly so frightening. And I was like, okay, I'm writing this story and maybe one day it could possibly turn into a book or maybe it's a novel. You know, I had to kind of trick myself into sitting down and working on it by not admitting to myself that I wanted it to be a book.
1: (laughs) So can you tell us about your path to publication for Catch Light?
2: Oh my gosh. Yes. So this is 13 years in the making. (laughs) So it's really just a culminating moment that I'm trying to enjoy every minute of it. So I first had the idea in 2007 and I spent the next maybe two years kind of writing, writing a first draft of it. And at the time, you know, I moved twice and I got married. There were like a lot of life changes that happened during those few years. And I ended up with a first draft and I was like, oh, I know that it can be so much better than this. And I just have no idea how to make it better. Like, I don't know what to do next. So I decided to go and get my MFA degree And so I went into that degree with a whole draft of the book. And in my very first workshop, after getting everyone's feedback on the first chapter, I was like, okay, we're starting from scratch. And I threw away like the entire first draft and I started over from page one and I rewrote the whole thing. And actually twice, I did that twice, (laughs) which I would not necessarily (laughs) recommend, but that was kind of, that was the journey for me. So I graduated from my MFA program in 2013, and I spent the next year really finishing it, polishing it. Like, it was really in a shape that I was really proud of. And then I started, you know, going like gangbusters at the next part of the process. So, I mean, I pitched like 120 literary agents. I was entering contests. I was pitching small presses. And I was just hearing no after no after no and also, like, silence after silence, right? Like, because some people just don't ever get back to you. Um, so after, like, a year probably of kind of really going after it, I was thinking, you know, kind of want to start writing something new. I don't want to be spending all of my time kind of pitching this book. So I decided to put it away for a little while. And I did. And I started working on some new things. And in 2019, I dusted it off and I entered a contest called the Fairfield Book Prize, which is for uh, students or graduates of the Fairfield University MFA program. And I had entered the contest before and didn't make the final round. And this time around, Catchlight won. So part of the prize was a book deal with a local Connecticut publisher.
1: That's that's an amazing story. So 125 literary agents?
2: Yes, and not a one. (laughs) Not a one to get on. I think a couple of people read the whole thing and they were like, it's good, but I'm going to take a pass. I had one person tell me, if I rewrote it, that she would consider taking it on, and I was like, "Listen, <laughs> I've rewritten this book three times, and I'm not going to rewrite it again on the pretext of possibly like you might represent it. Like, you know, that wasn't even guaranteeing a deal. So, yeah, 120 literary agents, and and not a one.
1: <laughs> and, and and I'm just curious, like, what kept you going? I mean, a lot of people will give up after five or ten or even you know 50 literary mm. agents.
2: Yeah, I have this drive in me of like this book gets to come out into the world and like and also this drive of like I am I am a writer and this is what I want to do for my life and like I'm going to get it done, right? And so in the end it kind of happened in a different way than I expected, right? I still don't have an agent cuz I'm working with a local press so I don't have an agent um and yet the book is coming out into the world. So I think there was just this <laughs> this stubbornness if you will of just like I think this book is good enough to be published and I think like and I know that I am meant to be a published author.
1: So you said that you set it aside before you pulled it out and dusted it off in 2019 for This contest. So did you turn to to working on some other fiction or even another novel?
2: Yes. I started, I I played with a couple of different ideas. I started one idea and kind of didn't finish it. I started another idea and I was like, not quite right. And yes, as of now, I am working on a new novel. I'm really excited about.
1: And can you tell us about the MFA program that you attended and what was your experience there?
2: Yes. So I loved my experience. And also, I am the first one to say that I don't think you need an MFA to be an author or to have a book or any of that. But it was the right path for me. So what the MFA really taught me was how to revise my own work, which previously, like I said, I had this draft. It was probably like 200 250 pages, maybe. And I was like, I know that it's not great. And yet I don't know. I kind of don't know what needs to happen next. And I think just reading other people's work and kind of seeing what landed for me and what kind of didn't land in other people's work, and then hearing people's feedback on my work about what landed and what didn't land, really taught me to have a more critical eye on my own work and really be able to go in and say like, oh, actually, this is working, this isn't working. And I think it also taught me how to take the feedback that was going to be useful and also to like discard feedback that wasn't going to kind of make the book what I wanted it to be.
1: So given your experience with Catch Light, as you've just described, Uh, three different drafts and submissions to 125 literary agents, etc. What writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories and novels?
2: Mm, such a good question. So I think getting feedback at some point in the journey is really critical. So actually, mm-hmm. the guest judge who chose Catchlight as the winner of the Fairfield Book Prize mm-hmm. was this wonderful writer, Phil Klye. Who won the National Book Award in 2014. And when I told him, I was like, oh my gosh, I've queried all these agents and nobody, you know, nobody said yes. And he was like, you know what? And then he gave me some feedback, which was he said, you know what? I really think the first three chapters are a little slow. And he said, if most agents were only reading that, he was like, that's probably why, like, nobody jumped in and took it on. And he said, the first three chapters right now, it's just a lot of table setting, you know, you're kind of setting up the whole story. And he just said, I wonder what would happen if you just jump right in, right? And so I ended up taking that advice and I cut the first three chapters because as soon as he said it, I was like, oh my gosh, I can totally see how that's true. Um, And it, it really resonated with me. So I think having that, being able to have another trusted writer or writers really read your work seriously and give you that kind of feedback is just invaluable,
1: And so what writers kind of inspired you along the way? Are there writers that you keep going back to that, that, um, you know, when you were getting these rejections and when you were doing the various drafts?
2: Mm -hmm. Good question. So I love Elizabeth Gilbert, and when her book eat, pray, love first came out, In I can't remember the year now, but I first read it in 2007 when I was starting to write the draft. And I really felt like this kind of external journey that she goes on, I really felt like I was going on this internal journey of figuring out this story and kind of finding my way. And her fiction, like more recently, has also just kept me so inspired as a fiction writer. I especially love her book, City of Girls, that just came out last year. And I just returned to her and I'm just like, she is just a genius. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> um, So definitely return to her work over and over again.
1: And what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed?
2: Ooh, good question. So City of Girls, again, I think I loved – Uh, Glennon Doyle's recent memoir, Untamed. I think the structure of that book is just absolutely brilliant to me. The way that she sets up what the way that the structure kind of mirrors this sort of untamed spirit that she's trying to convey, I think is gorgeous. I also just read, I've been reading a lot of fantasy recently, which is interesting because I don't write fantasy, Um, but I've been reading uh, some Brandon Sanderson. I'm reading his Skyward series, which is really fun. And I just read Lainey Taylor's book, Strange the Dreamer. And I've been gleaning a lot from fantasy about how to create a world that's really believable that the reader can just step into. And again, even though I don't write fantasy, I'm kind of taking a lot of those lessons and just learning, like, how do I set up my fictional world to be as engrossing as a fantasy writer would?
1: Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel Catch Light?
2: Oh, yay. So... All information about my work. And I also work with writers who are writing their first book. So you can find all that information at my website, which is brookadamslaw.com. Brooke with an E on the end. And then I'm also really active on Instagram. And I do a lot of writing tips and writing advice over there. And I am at Brooke Adams Law on Instagram. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Brooke Adams Law, author of the new novel, Catch Light. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Brooke, thanks for doing this interview.
2: Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it.
1: Great. Stay tuned now as Brooke Adams Law reads from her brand new novel, Catch Light.
2: Catch Light by Brooke Adams Law, Part 1, Chapter 1, Laura. Monday mornings were my favorite time of the week all that possibility, nothing had gone wrong yet. And I was having a great Monday morning until my sister called. I knew it was her because I'd set wrecking ball as her ringtone. And she only called when there was an emergency, like when her babysitter canceled. All you ever did was wreck me. Yeah, you wreck me. Maybe that song was a little too on the nose. I let it go to voicemail Mon- Izzy and Monday mornings were a bad mix like tequila and red wine. I just gotten into the clinic. I had three clients scheduled back to back, but there was still time to get coffee from the break room. Miley wailed for my phone again. And I jumped against my better judgment. I picked up it is what is it? I'm seeing a client in 10 minutes and no, I'm not saving a couple from getting divorced. My siblings like to make bad jokes about the divorced therapist giving couples counseling. Izzy took a shaky breath, which stopped me in my tracks. It's mom, she said. Panic flooded through me. What's wrong? What happened? Do you know Peggy Ramsey? She sits on the PTA board with me. She and her husband just bought a house on Lindsay Street. Well, they haven't moved in yet, but she was there because they're having some work done on the kitchen and Izzy, focus. Focus. What happened to mom? Peggy saw an ambulance at mom's house and saw mom getting loaded into it. Did you talk to Bill? Long pause. Seriously? You didn't even call him? Can you just pop over to the hospital and see what's going on? I leaned my head on my hand. Did you call Robert? I'm sure he's busy. He works at the hospital, is. I heard the doorbell ring through the phone. Lars, someone's at the door. I have to run. Can you let me know what's going on? At the hospital, I parked my baby blue caddy in the visitor's lot. Inside, the receptionist directed me to the fourth floor. Was it good or bad that mom was already admitted? Was it a slow day in the ER or what? Bill hadn't given me a lot of details, but when I asked him whether I should come down, he hadn't said no right away, which meant yes. I got off the elevator at the fourth floor and walked down the hall. The air smelled like disinfectant and feces. I stopped at room 412 and peered inside. A woman I didn't know lay in the first bed, apparently asleep. The view, dubbed in Spanish, played on the TV. I took a deep breath and walked around the curtain. Mom looked worse than I'd feared. Her head was wrapped in gauze, blood seeping through the bandage at her temple. A bruise bloomed down the side of her face. I'd never seen her look so small. And now we are going to skip ahead to chapter two. So the only thing you need to know is that later in chapter one, um, Laura's mother, Catherine, um, has had a fall. She suffered a fall on the patio. And when they did an MRI of her brain to check for bleeding, they found early signs of Alzheimer's disease. So she's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Chapter two, James. I leave the hospital and go directly to the bar. It's about noon. Jerry, the day bartender, uncaps a bud for me as I take my usual stool. I sit. He plunks it down in front of me, exactly centered on a paper coaster. Double whiskey, I say, and watch him pour it. Jerry sometimes shorts you on the doubles. Marty's on his third scotch and soda by the look in his eye, and he raises his glass to me as I drain my whiskey. Albert's playing poker at the machine by the window. His seat is two stools down from me, marked by four empty pint glasses streaked with beer foam and a pack of Marlboros. Albert likes to see his empty glasses lined up. Helps him pace himself, he says. Another, I say. Listen, Jerry says. No one ever starts a good conversation with the word listen. Joe doesn't want me to let you run up your tab any higher, he says. He looks at the bar, trolling a coaster instead of at me. Thank God it's payday. I do some roofing for my cousin Benny, and I picked up my pay envelope this morning. I pull out my wallet and put sixty dollars on the bar. Jerry pours me another double whiskey and I drain it. Jerry takes away my glass. He knows I like all evidence of my drinking to be removed as soon as possible. Helps me forget myself. Albert comes back. Win anything, I say? Up fifty dollars, he says. I want to smoke? Yeah. I follow him outside. The sun is bright and heat rolls off the asphalt. My skin breaks out in a sweat everywhere. My face, my pits, the backs of my knees. What's up, he says. What's up is Albert's way of saying, you don't usually start out on Monday with two double shots of whiskey. My mom's in the hospital, I say. Albert blows smoke in my face. Sucks, he says. Drunks are not the best sympathizers. I'll get your next round, he says. They think she has Alzheimer's, I say. The smoke from my cigarette is hot in my mouth. The sun is burning the top of my head. She said something. I don't know, man. It was weird. She looked all crazy, you know? Albert grunts, stubs out his cigarette, goes back inside. Mom has never called me a drunk before. She and Bill have done an intervention. She has kicked me out of the house. She has given me books and pamphlets on alcoholism. She has ignored my drinking, but she has never called me a drunk. There's a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach, like my mother has finally seen the worst of me.